Hello folks, welcome back and if you're a new listener, welcome to the show. You're listening to the High Performance Human Podcast and I'm your host, Simon Ward. Now you may not think so, but I just wanted to let you know that you are a high performance human. The concept of high performance is described as a measurable state where an individual like you consistently performs at a higher level of operational success compared with most of their peers within the same environment at a particular time. And it's not absolute, it's relative. Now, if you're an endurance athlete and train or compete regularly, don't just compare yourself against those other athletes. Instead, think about other folks of your age or people you work with. Compared to them, you are operating at a very high level. I appreciate that you might still want to improve on this. And if so, then we would love to help you. It could be sleep, nutrition, physical activity, personal relationships, work habits, and much more. And I've currently got availability to take on a couple of clients. And my wife, Beth, who is a certified life coach, also has some availability. So depending on what you're looking to focus on, we've got you covered. And you can find contact details in the show notes below. Today's podcast guest is Margaret Sills. I first met Margaret about 20 years ago when she asked me if I could help with her triathlon. So we started working together. During that time, she represented Great Britain Triathlon as an age group athlete and she also qualified for Kona twice. I can always remember that first time waiting at the finish line in Kona for her to finish and she she talks about this in the conversation. She had some struggles on the day but she made it inside the cutoffs and as she crossed the line I was so proud of what she'd achieved. I had a lump in my throat and tears in my eyes. Anyway the reason I invited Margaret onto the show this week was to talk about her 40 years as a triathlete. In 2023, she finished her final event almost exactly 40 years to the day after her first event back in 1983, which, by the way, makes her a pioneer of triathlon in the UK as the event she completed in Northampton all those years ago was one of the very first UK triathlons. Anyway, that's enough from me. Let's crack on and hear from Margaret. Welcome to the show, Margaret Sills. How nice to have you here. Nice to be with you, Simon. Um, you were just telling me before that our um, our relationship as coach and athlete goes back over 20 years. I hadn't realised it was quite that long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it, I hooked up with you. I think it was just before Hawaii, wasn't it? And I did that in 2004. So yeah, 2002. Wow, that's amazing. It's amazing how the time flies as well. Indeed, indeed. The, the, list, the listeners can't see this uh, video, but if they could, they'd both be, or oh, they'd all them both of them. We've we've got more than two listeners. They'd all be they'd all be amazed at just how young we both look and how well we've aged. You Absolutely. particularly. <laughs> <laughs> so the reason I invited you on um, is because in uh, a conversation, email conversation that we had towards the end of last year, you were telling me that you had done your last triathlon. Um, exactly 40 years to the day after your first one. And I'm thinking, whoa, that's an amazingly long career. Um, and you've since sent me a spreadsheet detailing all of those races you did. But uh, if we can rewind 40 years, mm-hmm. that's triathlon was still in its infancy um, in the world, but certainly in the United Kingdom. So um, how did you find out about that triathlon? Because there weren't any triathlon magazines, were there? And there weren't, and there weren't many triathlons. <laughs> well, there, there hadn't been any triathlons. It was May actually, in in uh, nineteen eighty three, and um, it would have been autumn nineteen eighty two. 
uh, when the local newspaper um, publicised that they were going to do this first ever triathlon in Europe. Um, now, whether that was exactly true or not, who knows? It was a local newspaper. But I thought, oh, that looks interesting. I had two young children. At that stage, they were kind of just three and five and a half or something like that. Um, and I thought, well, I don't know. I used to swim as a kid. I cycled to school. I've done the Sunday Times fun run. Well, of course I can do that. The mm-hmm. fact that it was a two and a half mile pool swim and a 50 mile, 56 mile bike ride. And then we all had to be on the uh, start line of the Northampton Town Marathon at 10 o'clock in the morning. So we had to get everything else out of the way. Mm-hmm. So there were transition times. But um, yeah, it sort of, it kind of sounded like a challenge. Uh, the, the biggest challenge, they wanted a qualifying time for the marathon of three and a half hours. Mm-hmm. Well, March 1982, I'd done, not March, whenever the London Marathon was in, in 1982, I'd done that in 350. That was my first marathon. Previously, I'd only done the Sunday Times Fun Run at two and a half miles. But, hey, you know, mm-hmm. I was young or younger and um, so I went off to Wolverhampton to see if I could do it to meet that. And um, I managed 338. So I wrote to the organisers and said, I'll probably be the only local woman. I've done 338. How about it? And they wrote back and said, yes, of course. <laughs> so I was in. <laughs> wow. There's always a bit of debate, isn't there? I don't know if you've seen the old school triathlon um, Facebook page, which uh, there's a lot of nostalgia in there and people posting. And I know Mark Leanthus has been around in triathlon for a long time. He posted that his first triathlon was, I don't know if it was 1982 or 83 at Curtin's farm somewhere near Reading. So there's this a bit, a bit like the debate about where was the first triathlon in the world? You know, was it some San Diego, New Zealand? I think there's still an open debate about where the first one was in the UK as well. Yeah. I think the Reading one was June, 1983. <laughs> if we uh, if we go and tell Mark, who is the encyclopedia of triathlon in the UK, that he was wrong, he'll uh, he'll, he'll explode. <laughs> Mate, we'll have we'll have to have him on the show, and then we can debate that one. So, um, well, that's amazing, and uh, you know, I've I've covered this story before um, from from my own experiences of triathlon when I started. My first one was 1987, so uh, you, you'd have been an old hand by the time I got going. But still, it fills me with a great deal of fondness to think about the process for entering a race back then. Can you can you remember what it was for that first race? I I haven't got the entry form, but it was very much that we're finding out they were the the, the marathon organisers, so um, they were more interested in how well you could run. You had to obviously you know write name, address, telephone number, um, next of kin, blah blah. Um, but we did get um, a, a package through the post with the number on, no chips, no timing, obviously. That was all um, done. We, we, there were 33 of us, 30 men and three women, and we all mm-hmm. had to take a counter and a driver with us. Okay. So we appeared, they used five pools around Northampton, and we did 128 and a half lengths, I think it was, mm-hmm. and we – had to have somebody counting for us and they would tick them off and, and so they would submit the uh, their record. Um, they then had to drive us to the where we cycled and we did laps of yeah. 
um, billing aquadrome, so they had to count those and then get us back to the start line of the marathon in in uh, uh, yeah by ten o'clock. But but the the counter and the time that it was double checked, but mm-hmm. it was up to kind of us to provide the uh, primary. Mm-hmm. encounter and then they sort of monitored it as as they went i don't really remember very much about the officials mm-hmm. other than people just saying yeah you need to be there you need to be there <laughs> you know? so um as a lot of people will be saying well it's not that's not a like triathlon today where it's flowed from one to the other. My first triathlon wasn't even in the right order. It was a, a pool swim at a local leisure center and it, there were two distances you could do. So I chose the shorter one. So it was a 500 meter swim and you went into the pool. You get, you got a card, a little three before card and, and you went to the pool and they wrote your name down and they wrote the exact time. So it'd be like nine twenty one start. And then, just like yours, somebody will be timing and counting the laps and they'd tap you on the head when you did your 20 laps and you get out and it would say 9, 28 and 30 seconds. All right. So then somebody would do the maths later and then you'd got 15 minutes. So then the person on the score on the counter table would add 15 minutes to that. And so 9, 28 plus 15, right. You've got 9, 43 and 30 seconds. You have to start the run from out the front here so that you could go and get changed. And then you went and you handed your card in at another table. Did you run? Yep. Same sort of process, work out your timing. Then you've yep. got 15 minutes to get changed, get your bike, and then ride up the road about a quarter of a mile to the start. And then you did three laps. And when you finished, the same thing. And then you handed it all in at the end. And then about three weeks later, this A4 envelope with my handwriting on the front came through the door. And it was a sheet of typed up. Um, with an old typewriter because they were all, you know, the letters and numbers were all over the place and the lines were particularly straight. But yeah, I was busy looking through the list to see where I am. And then I did that old triathlon thing. Well, if only I'd gone a bit faster here, I would have finished there. <laughs> well, I, I, I remember going in into the changing rooms and having a shower and drying myself mm-hmm. off and, and putting my cycle clothes on. Um, no such thing as cleats then. No. Uh, I did Little, have a helmet. One of those, was, one of those hair net ones. Stripey, no, yeah, it was a stripey um, yes. leather thing. Yeah, um, wouldn't have done much good if you'd actually fallen off and hit your head, I don't think. Not really, but I think it was the sort that the Tour de France were wearing at the time. Um, yes. I don't actually remember whether it was compulsory or not. I think it was. I think or I think it was highly recommended, but yeah. Yeah. Goodness, I, it was all done by hand and, as you say, typewritten out and, uh, yeah. It, it was all it, don't you think it was all quite exciting then because you you know when you saw the advert for something on a on a a notice board at a leisure center or in a newspaper you 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 had to write a letter yeah or there might have been a phone number and then you'd ring the person up and then then you'd get this letter through um and you'd, then you'd have to send it back with that stamp two stamp addressed envelopes one for your all your race pre-race details and another one later for your results and it was always quite nice the week before the event to get to get that sort of packaged through with your with your hat and uh, your race number no i didn't have a hat i had my own hat. no swim hat no i had my own swim hat um but yeah i remember the local um newspaper sort of write-up and i was showing it to some of the club down here um and it, it was i think it there must have been a couple of other local men um and i can't remember quite how many there were but that the comment was, and one of them is a woman. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, you know, and you, as if. 
you said there were you said there were three female competitors. Can you remember yeah. who the other two ladies were? I don't. Um, they were both swimmers. I, I remember one was I, I believe from Coventry, the the, the big swim. Oh, Godiva is it Coventry Godiva? Well, yeah, Coventry somewhere. I think. And I think the other one was up north somewhere, Liverpool way. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I, mm, I don't know. But I've got a list of competitors. So I must have somewhere. But they don't actually mention the other two women in the newspaper cuttings I've got because it was wow. a local paper, and I was the only one from Northampton. <laughs> so you you were a you were a bit of a pioneer then in terms of triathlon in Britain, weren't you? Really, not just for one of the first female competitors, but one of the first people, of, of male or female, to take part in a triathlon. That's that's some accolade. Yeah, I guess so. But I was, you know, um, I was up for a challenge, and it was on my doorstep. What's yeah. you know, what's more to like? I mean, the fact that I had two young children, um, and I was trying to do this, that, and the other. Um, I, I remember going to the pool once a week for the, with the club, and uh, once and sometimes I'd take my younger son, and mm-hmm. I, I would swim with him on my back. Say, you know, put put your hands on my shoulders and push me along. Um, so we'd be going up and down. I'd be going up and down the pool with him, sort of with his hands on my shoulders, <laughs> trying to push me along. Um, and then I I dropped them at school, well, play school and school at nine, and I'd already be changed. Um, and I had I'd have three hours before I had to pick the youngest one up at play school. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I'd either run for whatever, cycle mm-hmm. for whatever, before I had to pick them up and sort of get back to ordinary life as it were but, yeah bec- uh, but, but, i mean this is the other thing isn't it that there weren't any triathlon coaches or books at that time oh. so you, you had to make it all up yourself didn't you through trial and error about the type of training you did yes exactly it was like, i i mean i've always enjoyed the challenge of kind of working out how to do something so it was like well okay in, in may i need to be able to do that it's now sort of october november December yeah I think it was just before Christmas when I knew I'd got a place no I had a provisional place as long as I'd done that marathon but um yeah so it was I remember training with a bloke who was going to do the London marathon for the first time and so we were running together and he was very much oh oh, oh, yeah really need to you know go fast and hard and blah 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 and I'm thinking hang on a minute I can't do that for four hours or however long it was going to take me um three and a half hopefully but hey and uh so I remember then thinking well because I did a kinesiology and physiology sports science specialism mm-hmm. my phys ed degree so I did have a bit of background to kind of draw on um and kind of knew a little bit about heart rates and and that kind of stuff but mm-hmm. I but it was very much a sort of you know a thing is on the wrist type or on the carotid artery in the neck. Mm. Where I was like, oh, yes, relaxation. This guy was very much oomph, oomph, oomph. And I was thinking, well, actually, if I'm going to keep going for that long, I I need to make sure I, I'm relaxed and, you know, it should feel easy. So I remember talking to him about, well, when we're running, my he was on the um, working leg and I was on the resting leg as it swung through from the back to the front. Mm-hmm. front 
I was focusing on relax the, the push off. Okay, you need a combination of those two, but the relaxation bit just wasn't in his vocabulary. And I've remembered that ever since because it's come in very handy in various events and 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 runs and triathlons. And we both did the same London Marathon. Um, and he whizzed off, mm. and I settled into my aiming for about four hours. And I, halfway, I thought, hmm, like that. I think that's him up front. I was sort of catching him up. And uh, anyway, I did 350. He did 410. (laughs) I said, right, you can remember that one. (laughs) Amazing. And, uh, you know, I was just looking at that spreadsheet you sent me there, and it wasn't far off. I suppose you were 100K short on the bike, but you weren't far off a full Ironman, really. Were you doing that Northampton triathlon? No, the swim and the run were the the Ironman distances. So it's just the bike was a bit shorter, yes. So so, so not only were you at one of the first triathlons, but you were also at the first London Marathon. Second London Marathon. Oh, okay. Second, right. (laughs) Well, still, and uh, can you remember what the numbers were of that? Because it wasn't very big, was it? Not like what we experienced today. I remember rightly, it was about 15,000. Oh, Maybe still, less. still still pretty impressive. Oh, quite a lot. Twelve, fifteen. I mean, where are they now? It's it's over double that, isn't it? Oh, well over and four or five times oversubscribed as well. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So um you did that first race. Uh, it's common for people to get across the finish line and go, Oh, I'm never doing that again. Was that you? I was very tired. I was very wet because it was raining. <laughs> and so those two things as a combo, well, um, I suppose I had to switch my mindset back to, you know, where are the children, what, well, you know, what's going on and need to need to go and cook the dinner sort of thing. Um, no, it was, I kind of, it was tough. Don't get me wrong, but I kind of enjoyed it. Um and there wasn't anything else that I knew about at that stage. So it was a little while before I actually did another triathlon. Mm. Um, but I, I don't I was quite emotional when I came across the finish line. Mm-hmm. Um and that's not unusual when we did other things like, you know, the jog or race across America or something, you know, other other big events. You I challenged myself because I was I suppose wanted to know what I couldn't do. Where were mm-hmm. where were my limits? And I remember on that first triathlon, thinking, oh, hmm, okay, yeah, it was tough. Um, it took me nine and a half hours, I think it was, because of that shorter bike. Um, so that's quite a long time to keep going. My mother thought I was, and my husband thought I was absolutely daft. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I kind of don't recall thinking never, never, never again at that stage, funnily mm. enough. Yeah. Okay, so um, you said that, there weren't that many triathlons actually being organised at that point. So what, what was your next one? That Well, it, it was a while um, because I'd, we moved house the following year. So from Northampton to uh, just beyond Bristol. So as far as I could see, there was nothing nothing around uh, at that stage down um, in the West Country. So I did cycle time trials. I did uh, running events. I did master's swimming and and so I sort of kept the three going uh, as individuals and then I think it was it was probably four or five years later before I did another one and it was a short one um at Burnham um mm-hmm. they don't do them anymore although we're thinking we might try and reinstate but um that was a, a, a shorter one um 
and the shorter ones didn't exist mm. when when there was Reading and Northampton and wherever the other ones were. Um, so, and then it was 1995, I think, when I got the children settled. I'd, I'd done my master's, done my PhD, um, and, mm-hmm. and sort of re-emerged to sort of think, okay. Well, I, I was swim training because the the I said to the club, I said, well, hang on, my sons are swimming. I, I, I've finished the, the studying, which I used to do while they were swimming. Um, and can I swim? And they said, oh, hmm. well, yes, but you'll have to swim a length of each stroke and demonstrate the proper turns for each stroke and keep up with a session. Mm-hmm. They didn't think I was going to be able to do that. So I said, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> so he looked at me afterwards and said, oh, can't say no then, can we? Mm-hmm. So I was training with the senior squad at the swim, the regular swim club, um, and then got into the master's swimming. So I was keeping things ticking mm-hmm. over until triathlons came back into my life, as it were. So w- w- that was always your first love then, was it, swimming, from when you were young? Yes. I um, I swam as a teenager. Um, got to the nationals at the Derby Baths Blackpool. Um, you know, the usual sort of ballet and dancing and hockey teams and tennis teams and mm. stuff at school. But, I yes, I came from a swimming background, and what, what which was I'm your, very thankful for. <laughs> what, and what was, your, what was your main stroke? Um, it started as backstroke. Mm-hmm. Um, There's the, no such thing as goggles then. So... Um, I hated front crawl mm-hmm. because I didn't see anything afterwards. But backstroke and breaststroke were my main strokes and individual medley. So I did do some front crawl, but only only to finish off a medley. Mm. Um, so I went to the nationals. It was backstroke. And what what age was when a what age? twelve year old? Twelve year old. Came wow. From South Africa and broke the world record in the same event. Wow. So how old you, were you? How old were you yes, then? Exactly. At that point? <laughs> I, I started. Uh, um, blah, 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 thirteen, yeah, okay. thirteen. Okay, wow, wow. So that's um, that's sixty years you've been swimming. Then, oh no, I've, I've given you age away now, Margaret. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> my maths is better. Than, my maths is better than my secret keeping. <laughs> <laughs> I think most people, more people who know me, know it. So, <laughs> uh, okay, <laughs> G- great. So, um, tell me about some of the. Tell me about some of the triathlons that you've done over the years that stick in your mind for one reason or another. Oh, yeah. Well, I suppose the first one that sticks in my mind was was actually a duathlon at Longleat, um, where I fell into the British age group team by mistake. Um, it was a standard distance duathlon, and then and the announcement, you know, the first two in each age group have qualified to represent Great Britain at the uh European Championships in Hungary in it was either three or four weeks' time. There wasn't a hell of a lot of notice. Um and if you want to go, please come to the to the well it was a shack, but anyway, never mind. Please come and say hello. So I did. And uh so I toddled off with Sue Bathgate to Hungary mm-hmm. and also Rose Dunning, I think her anyway. Um so there was the three of us in the British team, forty over forties. I mean, I was forty-five at that stage. Yeah, um, and well, I was a swimmer, and there <laughs> I was as a doing duathlon. I think right. Anyway, 
but I came third in my age group and we won um, the team. <laughs> there are a few emotional moments that come back to me. I bet they were. Well, that's and great. And did you win the team gold medal then? We won the team gold and we were standing on the podium with the national anthem playing. Wow. And, uh, yeah, it was it was quite something. Something it's... that I never, ever thought no. I would be able to do. And and there's not many people can can say they've had that honour, is there, to stand on the podium and listen to the national anthem? Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think they, they got the hang of it after that in a sense that actually if they played national anthems for all the winners, you were there all night and actually people just wanted the food. Um, but, you know, that that first one there. Um, so, yeah, I kind of thought, oh, quite, you know. So I then, that year, I went to Stockholm for the European Triathlon. Um, the standout there was we got the silver medal. Um, and then Cancun. And so that was 1995. That's right. There was the, the world, the ITU duathlon on the Saturday, whichever Saturday it was. The following Saturday was the ITU world triathlon. Mm-hmm. So I thought, hmm, okay, I'll apply for both of those. They're in the same place. I'm already there. Might as well do both. Hey, a week apart, but you know, that was early days for me anyway. I just thought, and I was young, and yes, anything's possible. Um, and I think more than anything for that, there were two things it was the tropical fish off the coast of Cancun that looked mm-hmm. as colorful as they were in the shops, the wooden mm-hmm. one. And I drank two and a half liters on the bike part of the duathlon, which wow. was like 40 kilometers. Um, uh, it was hot. It was 30 degrees and it was very humid. So mm. that was quite an initiation into into racing. I think I was 6th six, and 12th, I think it was. Was that Cancun, the one where Karen Smyers won after winning? Um, I no. think that was the next Cancun one. She Did she win in Kona and then she won in, uh, and then she went and won the world straight afterwards, I think? To be honest, Simon, I did Cancun twice and I think and there was a third one there as well. Um, it was Leander Cave won yes. the Worlds in Cancun as well, didn't she? One yeah, year. but I I don't actually remember who. I remember the faces, but I don't remember the names. My my inkling is that they were the next lot in Cancun, but I'm, okay. I may well be wrong. Mm. It's all a bit muddled up over 40 years. I bet it is. I, I've got pictures in my mind. I've got memories. Sometimes I can pin them down and other things think, hmm. Um, I mean, it was like, the, it, I think it was Finland, and we, what, the cycle came down the back of the um, a ski jump, and we had four oh, laps. So we had, wow. to get, we had to get up there for a kickoff. But then you did a U-turn at the top and came all the way down. It was the back of the ski jump, but it was still sort of uh, quite steep. And I remember following, um, on the second lap, there was a guy who – I was a stronger swimmer, but he caught, he was a really strong biker. And so he just before we got to the top, he, he came past me and said, how are you doing, Margaret? And I said, yeah, fine, thanks. Um, so I thought, oh, he knows he knows his way around a bike and the roads. He's, you know, really experienced. So I thought, right, if I, if I hang on to him, I mean, it wasn't drafting, so I had to keep my distance, as it were. Um, but I, I kind of followed him around the U-turn and I thought, right, just watch where he's going. And it was 45.7 miles an hour down this hill. I, I wow. later 
later found out that I was doing. But that that, 80, 80 kilometers an hour sounds faster. <laughs> yeah, it, it was quite quick, um, particularly actually because you couldn't, sometimes it just looked you're going to go over the tops of trees and into the clouds beyond, but there was obviously a turn in the road there. But uh, yeah, so there's, there's little snippets like that. But then, yeah, and all that, I suppose I settled on 70.3s as being my favorite distance. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> there was one in, Estonia in Otapa, and uh, bless them, they, they were, I, I beat the winners of the chaps, um, whatever it was, I can't remember now, 65 to 69 or something, or 60 mm-hmm. to 65, and uh, by 40 minutes. Wow. And, and, and uh, <laughs> I'm who I used to coach with in, I first met in Finland, his friendships along the way as well is really important. So I met Ein in Finland. He's from Estonia. Oh, is this Einala Johansson? Yes. Yes, I know Ein, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So we first met in 1997 in Finland. Um, He coached with us in Lanzarote for several years, which was Mm -hmm. great. We reconnected. Um, And he was the organiser for the first Estonian half Ironman in Otepe. I think they're now in Tallinn. But, yeah, so he said, I hope they won't mind me saying this, but... Margaret beat the the blokes by forty minutes. Anyway, I, I toddled off. I think I can't remember now whether that was yeah, Lanzarote. I qualified for Las Vegas. Then there was oh, Port Elizabeth, um, and yeah, Chattanooga. That one was yeah, qualification. Must... I think. Mm. Did, did you go to the clear either of the Clearwater events that, that were the first World seventy point threes? No, Las Vegas was the first one that um, I went to. Is that the one that started out at Henderson Lake? Absolutely. There's a yeah. memory there too, because it rained on that one. And again, it was downhills. Well, I quite like downhills, whether I'm cycling down them or skiing down them, just a little bit of a speed merchant, I think. And uh, so it was raining. And well, in this in the UK, we get used to cycling in the rain, right? So I was coming down this hill in Henderson National Park. Um past all these blokes who were kind of sitting up and whatever. Yeah. So I was right down on my um, hoods, I think, or drops or something or another. I, don't, I, I think I'd given the uh, tri-bars a miss on on that downhill, but it was wet. Uh, and I was just whizzing by them. I mean, there was little me coming by these great big strong blokes, and I think they sort of thought it was a bit odd. But afterwards I was chatting to some of them, and they said, well, we don't go out in that weather. If we open the curtains and it's raining, we shut them again and go back to bed. <laughs> I remember doing um, Lake, Pas- Lake Placid Ironman in 99, and it was the first time they'd been there. And there was, as you went out of the town um, to start the, you know, after about seven or eight miles on the first loop of the bike, they'd been talking on the forum, not the, um, whatever forum was around then for the race, about this super steep downhill that was really going to scare everybody. Bearing in mind, I'm from Yorkshire, so we've got fairly fa- some some fairly good steep downhills here. Um, so I'm I'm there with my friend, and we decided that we would go out for a ride. Um, uh, uh, after we got there, and just see exactly how steep this hill was, and we set off. And I can remember going down, and Steve and I are there, sort of just on the drops, chatting away to each other, and going, "Well, 
this is a nice warm-up, isn't it? I wonder where the steep is. And then after about half a mile of this, it runs off and it becomes flat. And then off we go down the valley and out of town and onto the first lap. Oh, I said, we must have missed a turn or something, Steve. He said, well, we're, we're, we're 15 miles in now. I'm sure it said it was after 10 miles. Anyway, we decided to um, turn around and, and ride back. And we caught these guys up and they were obviously locals. And we were saying, well, where's, where's this steep hill? He said, this is it. This is the opposite. We're riding up it now. I'm like, this isn't a steep hill. He said, it's, it's 10%, man. <laughs> I'm like, 10%, man. This is a little bump. Um, so, yeah, it was um, so, sort of similar to your uh, your thing about riding in the rain. You know, it just made us realize that the yeah. the, the relative steepness of hills can change, can't it? Um, no, absolutely. And, I mean, I, I that's one of the disappointments of Hawaii, I think. I mean, I, I qualified, yeah, 20, 2004 I did that one. Um, I managed to get to Kona. And I was thinking, oh, that's, that's good. You know, apart from the fish in the sea again, which were great. Um, well, you well know Kona. You know, it goes up and then it comes down, basically. Um, and I was looking forward to the down, except that I wasn't that particularly quick. So by the time you get to Harvey, the wind's changed. Mm. So I, I remember these sort of, I don't know, 40-mile-an-hour winds trying trying to get down the hill back into uh, Kona. I had to pedal down the hill. There was I looking forward to <laughs> – I don't mind pedalling a bit if I'm really going to go fast, but not pedalling just to go down the hill. Well, and of course, the, the, the problem with the winds in Hawaii, because of the way the two volcanoes are and that gap and the, the, yeah. the wind coming off the ocean as you're going back down from Harvey, the ocean's on your right, isn't it? And you can tell what sort of day it is when you see the white caps. And if people ever watch the race coverage on the telly, there's never any white caps on the sea when the pros go past. But by the time <laughs> that you and I get there in the afternoon, of course, the winds are picked up and Absolutely. there are white caps and you get a sort of foreboding sense of this, this wind, which can one minute you can be doing 60, 70 K an hour freewheeling. The next minute you're in the middle of the road because a gust's just blown you halfway across yeah. the freeway. And then the next minute like, you're back to having to pedal as hard as you can to keep the momentum going. And, th and then yeah. all of a sudden you, you get a tailwind again. And it's, it's, it's it, the it's only weird. It's, yeah. yeah. A bit like Lanzarote, Iron Man, and there's always, you know, which is the harder. And I, I think, you know, it swings around the bounce on that one. They're both hot and they're both windy. Well, it always, I mean, I, like you, I've been to Lanzarote quite a bit and I always feel like when you're going north on the Ironman, every, and that's where, you know, on the original course that we're familiar with, nearly all of the long climbs were into a headwind, weren't they? But then if you come down Mirador, yeah. Del Rio, then, and going back along the bypass where that main road where you used to go, that was all a tailwind along there. And so that was nice, that bit. <laughs> you could, it would take, it would take you four hours to get to the top of the island and, and, and just over an hour to get back down the other way again yeah um yeah whereas H hawaii always just seems like it's the only race in the world where you can get a headwind on the way out and a headwind when you go exactly the other way yes exactly and <laughs> I, yeah um yeah it's it's weird but there you go so um can you i i can think of a few races that i've done which were from from an organizational point of view were a bit of a disaster do you remember any events that you did that were like that um, when things were just, you know, a, a bit amateurish in the way they were put together? Um, that's interesting. Um, my, my answer to that is yes and no. I mean, I'm sure there have been times when I thought, oh, I wouldn't do that. Um, and it's particularly around transitions. 
mm. when um, you know that you choose where you put your bike, or you know you you pick your bike up and you expect to put it back where it is, but there's a whole bunch of other bikes there. Um, mm. And 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 so the the kind of organisation of transition, I think, I've been perhaps more mm. uh, frustrated with at times. But there's, there's never been a complete. I've never felt unsafe. Mm. I don't think, and I think that's partly because I, I I expect to have to change. I expect that to have to be flexible. Mm. You know, you're prepared. You have a plan. You know what you want to do. But at the same time, you have to cope with what's happening around you at, at the time. Mm. Um, yeah, there was no. I'm, I don't remember any specific race. I probably wouldn't mention it if it was because that's <laughs> a bit unfair on the organisers. But uh, um, all the all the international ones I've done, I think, have been mm. uh, yeah. Um, it was well organised, but Lausanne got you got a ninety degree turn and you went up a steep hill and it was cobbles. Well, you know that's a bit mean, but mm. people put challenges on courses for a, a reason, um, you know. And, and I suppose when you had the flat time trial type courses, then you were all kind of bunched up. So they were, then you started trying to find the biggest hills that they could find and stick them in the middle of the bike ride or whatever uh, to break the field up a bit. So there was always a rationale for for something that I thought, well, I wouldn't do it that way. Mm. Mm. But, I, um, uh, yeah. yeah. I can remember doing this race in Hunstanton. And my recollection was that there was only one boat, one kayak um, to look after all the swimmers. Um, the tide was coming in, and so the waves were smashing in against the the seawall at the back of the beach. And there were all these metal groins, you know, the ones with the lights on that mark where the where the entrance to the slipway is when the tide's in. And they were about fifty meters, at least in my memory, fifty meters out from the harbour from the from the seawall. And that people were trying to go in down the ramp, and the waves were coming in and washing them back out again. But I was going in, and people were getting out because it was too rough. I remember people hanging on to, the, to these sort of posts and asking to be rescued. Um, I carried on with the swim thinking I was going to come out last because I just never seemed to be making any progress. But, yeah, there were still lots of people swimming. And and then I can remember the on the bike section coming down through the town and there was no course marked off, having to negotiate queues of traffic that was waiting to get in to park at the beach. And then... Um, my recollection of the run was just running along the sea wall and out and back, but I've, I've since found a, a homemade video of this thing. And, um, and you can see the winners of the race running down the main street, right down the center lines of the main street that's coming down to the beach and cars behind them, tooting them to get out of the way. And you can see this guy in his vest and his speedos running and, um, people crossing in front of them it, yeah the, I, the, uh, yeah. I, I, I do remember i do remember that the organizer of that race was banned from ever doing anything for british triathlon but that was still way back in the 90s i think i was gonna say sort of mid 90s and i was down here and um i suppose you know the only time i've ever come off um and it was coming down a hill and i knew there was a roundabout at the bottom of the hill and there was a left-hand turn off mm. the roundabout so that was all in my mind but there was bags that there was lots of traffic around so I had to negotiate sort of uh mm. traffic that didn't really want to allow me to whiz down the hill um 
And when I got to the bottom, expecting the left-hand turn to sort of be at 45 degrees, I found there was another left-hand turn. So it's partly my fault for not checking the roundabout, the map of the roundabout. But there was no – suddenly appeared mm. this arrow, which was before oh. the one at 45 degrees. So I thought, oh, So that's where I learned never to – turn and break at speed <laughs> <laughs> and i land they uh, give the organizers their due they hadn't bollard it or you know explained to the cars what was going on but they had stationed the red the st john's ambulance or the red cross on that corner <laughs> so i kind of landed there and and sort of picked myself up twisted the saddle back twisted the um uh-huh. handlebars back put the chain back on and and got back on the bike and carried on. It wasn't until I, I was picking everything up at the end that I discovered that I'd actually split my helmet in half. Wow. But, so, yeah, it could have been a little bit more kind of uh, attention to detail there. There was I, one, um... one, other, one other in Ibiza. We were, um, I think that was a world's or Europeans, and uh, we were in the harbour, and we were going off the harbour wall which I think was, I, my memory is it was about five foot or over two, you know, between a you know, metre and a half or whatever um, from the water. Well, being a swimmer and being used to racing dives, that didn't faze me at all. Mm. A hell of a lot of people it did. Um, and so I kind of like dived in and, and sort of came up looked <laughs> my arm and there's a whole bunch of people still trying to sort of mm-hmm. get in the water whether it was jumping or sliding in or whatever there were a few of us that managed to dive in but you know you've got your goggles it's quite a it was higher than the starting block it was probably mm. at least two starting blocks if not more um so i don't remember anything i remember being surprised about that thinking oh mm. well, you know <laughs> i mean i i've always been towards the front end of the, my age group on the swim and then less so on the bike and the run. So the race day experiences for me is usually one of going backwards as soon as I get onto dry <laughs> land and, and then feeling like I'm not very good. But actually, it's just the it's just the people who aren't particularly fast swimmers who tend to be good cyclists. But, but the advantage it did give me is that whenever we went into the water like that race I've just described, I was just straight in there and it, yeah. and it, didn't, and it didn't bother me. But there's, there's been a number of races that I've done but with the same experience that you've just described where you think, oh, it's a bit cold or it's a bit rough, but well, the organizers wouldn't do anything and put our lives at jeopardy. So off we go. And then you come back and there's still people stood on the shore with the tickling their chin, wondering where they should go and get wet. Yeah, I remember at the Hawaii start because that, um, that was before the days of the um, um, rolling starts. It was all in together, two mm. and a half thousand odd, same as Nice was 3,000, I think. Um, Anyway, between two and 3,000 people in the water, all starting at once. Mm. And they did say, well, the first two rows should be the elites or, you know, whatever. And then uh, over to everybody else, find yourself a spot, as it were. Um, they didn't even, was Nice, I think, said, right, women on the left, men on the right. Um, and uh, I don't think we got that at Nice. All they said was, well, the start's about 400 metres away, so make sure you get in on the beach in time to sort of swim mm. out. And I thought, right, well, where do I go? Um, and I thought, well, okay, I'll just head for the middle. So I parked myself at the um, 
not very far behind the elites, to be honest, although that was, yeah, that was a bit mm, OTT. But anyway, moved up towards the front. It was right in the middle. thought, I'm just going to go for this. And uh, so the gun went. There were still people coming in onto the beach yeah. when, the, when the gun went, but off I went. And, I, you know, after a few few strokes, few hundred metres, whatever, I kind of looked around and I, I I looked to my left and I couldn't see anybody and I looked to my right and I couldn't see anybody and I thought, oh, then I could see them sort of further away from me and I looked behind and there was a bit of a gap. I looked in front, there was a bit of a gap. It probably wasn't like this from the top, but it felt like it was on my own in the middle. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. Because I started in the middle where nobody else wanted to be. Mm. I, w- I was able to settle into the swim and then move across, you know, into the, the bit that I uh, yeah. wanted to be in. So, yeah. <laughs> I, I think I had a similar experience because it, it, the, the year I did it was still when they were having reasonable mass starts. Maybe it was males and females. But anyway, I, I remember being there and I remember be, sort of Mike, Mike Riley talking and people going, hey, man, we're at the Ironman. And they were all high, all these Americans are high-fiving each other now. You know, it's it's strange, isn't it? Because whilst you've got a big ocean there, you're swimming parallel to the shore, and if you get too close to shore, you get caught in the swell and the waves taking you into the beach. And if and obviously you can't go too far out to the right because um, there's all the the buoy line there to stop you mingling right. with the you know eventual people coming back. And I I remember the same as you. I, I was thinking, right, well, I'm, I know I'm going to swim just over the hour, so I don't want to be right at the back, but I don't want to get smashed up by all the guys who are going to go off too fast. And it, it felt to me like I was right in the middle, and I could see what felt like a conveyor belt of people swimming across to my left, right down the middle line, thinking I need to be over there because they're all going really fast. But I just I couldn't seem to. It was like there was a, a mag, an anti magnetic field stopping me from getting <laughs> over there until I got until I got round the. The, the two boats at the end and then started coming back um yeah it's, it's always very strange isn't it and like you say when it the reality of it is probably there was lots of people very close to you in front and behind but it doesn't feel like that yeah. no no it's kind of you know it's just little snippets like that on the jellyfish and mallorca and things like that but yeah <laughs> wow well there's there's, anyway. there's some there's some amazing experiences there now you said that you've um you've ridden the jog um Yes, did that a couple of years ago, 2022. Yeah, did you um, did you take your time or did you? Um, we did, did you... it in ten days, so we averaged 93 miles a day. Yeah, and that's um, that's that's a pretty impressive uh, sort of daily daily mileage because the first two couple of days when you're getting, did you come from Cornwall up to Scotland? We yeah. did, yes, and I think coming through the hills of Cornwall and Devon is ha- the, probably the hardest bit. Mm. You know, you think, oh, the rest is going to be hilly, and well, yeah, okay, there are hills, um, but uh, some of the wettest, narrowest, <laughs> leafiest, mm. <laughs> deepest hills were definitely in Cornwall. Yeah, <laughs> that, that was my recollection that it was just there weren't particularly big hills like you got further north, but they just you go up one and then you drop down, then another one. It was just relentless for the whole day. And then it was the same the next day until you got up to Bath. And then we, we went across through the across across the bridge across the bridge, across the seven, and then into um east of Wales, sort of Forest of Dean area and up, up to Shropshire. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that got a bit flatter then right the way up to sort of Cheshire and, and everything. So there were um, there were 19 of us riding. Yeah. Nineteen of us did it together. Um, was that a tri club? Was that a tri club? Was that a tri club thing then, or or part so, of that organised you know, him? Various challenges. So, 
when you did the jog, was it part of an organised group through through Serpentine or through a cycling club, or was it one of these charity rides that you did? No, it was a self-organised group through the um, the the a group in Western and Bristol. It was a mix of of clubs. Um, mm-hmm. Two of my athletes um, belonged to Serpentine, and they came down and 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 did it with us. There were some from Western Athletic Club. There were others who were just kind of friends so the 19 of us got together and we had uh three kind of support um crew as it were uh so yeah we self-organized that but i don't think i would have been in a position yes no one minute yeah i'd have been 71 i was yeah i was probably the oldest one to finish in that group mm. but again quite emotional when we were over the line at at uh, John O'Groats, but it, you know, it was, it, it's, it's feeling that you, you achieve what you set out to do. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I remember um, one of the first real long cycle kind of events I did was race across America. And I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. There were two of us who were sitting there. We'd just done Lanzarote half Ironman and we were waiting for a transfer to the airport. And my friend goes, Oh no, this was a this is a different one. I'll come back to Race Across America. This one was how do you fancy riding from Lhasa to Kathmandu? And I thought, well, if I knew how far that was and where it was, <laughs> I might. Um, I said, give me a couple of days and I'll think about it. Sorry, just to interrupt. Did you say Lhasa to Kathmandu or Leicester? Lhasa. Lass, <laughs> I'm thinking Leicester to Kathmandu is a long way. <laughs> yeah, so it's Lhasa to Kathmandu. It's across the Himalayas. Right. Or the Himalaya. And uh, so we, um, and at altitude, so there was yes. five passes above 5,000 metres, which was quite interesting. And that was done on a mountain bike and um, through Everest National Park. And I, that one of the, one of the real standout moments was coming around the corner and seeing Everest sparkling in the background. Um, yeah. So we were camping across there and, uh, so that you know, that was a thousand. Can't remember now whether it was a thousand kilometers or a thousand miles, but it was quite a long way. Um, we did that over a couple of weeks because we, you can't, you at that altitude, you have to be a bit careful about trying to do too much. Yeah, in, in one day, um, it's, it's it's always difficult, isn't it, when you're aerobically very fit because Kate, you you are capable of doing more, but if you do, it puts too much strain on your body, and then and then you get ill. Put it this way: you could see the passes ahead of you, and you thought, "Oh, okay, I'll um, I can do this now. I'll, one more go, and I'll get there." Having already stopped for about three or four photographic stops, they came in very handy. And uh, yeah, anyway, yes, you you do have to respect that. Um, mm-hmm. And we always came down to four thousand meters to sleep. Trouble is, then you always knew that you had to go up <laughs> mm-hmm. the following day. I hope you're enjoying the show so far and learning a lot. If you aren't already a regular listener, I hope you feel you might come back. Please make sure to hit the subscribe button so you know whenever a new episode arrives. I publish these twice a week, ad-free, and with the mission of improving the health and performance of endurance athletes around the world. And to help me, I'd love it if you could share the episode with one person you think could benefit. If you have a couple more minutes, perhaps you could leave me a review on your chosen platform once you've finished listening to this episode. Okay, let's get back to the show. 
tell me about Race Across America then, because that is a big challenge. Yes, we did. We that was as a team, not me as an individual. I don't think um, I, I. Yeah, the back of me thinks could I've done, um, but no. It, it was a friend who'd crewed for a team, and having crewed, thought, oh, uh, you know, I wonder if anybody would sort of join me. So that was a serpentine um, club team that got together the serpentine golden girls we were because we were all well 2008 i was 58 um i one was 61 yeah 62 60 58 56 so we were all getting on a bit (laughs) well 2008 then we did it again in 2019 um the same the same team but again what was interesting there it, it it's um it's very specific we decided that we were going to do eight-hour shifts. We did six-hour shifts the second time. And we'd work in pairs, and so two of us would be riding for eight hours, well, alternating, one hour on, one hour off, one hour on, the other in the car, uh, you know, car, bike, car, bike, car, bike. And the others would be eating and sleeping as best they could in the RV because once the clock starts, it doesn't stop until you get to Annapolis on the, in uh, Maryland. So- were you doing it as part of the official race across America then? Yes, very much so. Okay, and does that have a does that have a limit on you know like a cutoff time by which you have to get to the finish? Yes, nine days as a team of four. Um, right, and um, was that was that you a team of four? Yes. Okay. Yeah. You can do individuals, pairs, fours, or eights. Maybe six. No, eights. Um, we did it as a four, um, and so any team. Uh, it's nine days and an individual they get 12 days and if I remember rightly we did it in something like uh, I used to know this off by heart eight days nine hours and 16 minutes wow and so I mean there's around 3,000 miles of cycling there it's like, yes it's just over 3,000 miles right but I, I've uh, I've just one of the podcasts that we've just had out is with a, uh, a chap who did Le Loop which oh, is yes. the, the Tour de France that, and yeah. <laughs> What struck me from the conversation there was that actually the cycling was the easy part. I think that Absolutely. was the, um, and it and it was the obviously when you're doing an event like that, even though you're taking time when you're not riding and the and the the other team members are riding, you you're in the RV, but you're not really able to get rest, are you? Because in that in that in that eight hour rest period, you've got to clean yourself up, you've got to get some food. That probably takes about an hour you've got to get prepared before you go back out for your next stint. So there's probably half an hour there. So now it's down to six and a half hours. The RV's moving. And so you're, you know, bumping around. So I guess that sleep and just discomfort and eating and all those things were, were logistical challenges. I'd much rather ride than be crew because they were in charge of those logistical challenges, making sure that they, you know, went shopping, cooked the meals for us, um, Made sure that the um, the car and the and the uh, cars and the RV were you know had had fuel and the tires were pumped up and blah 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 blah. So yes, once we got in, we ate. Yeah, as you say, cleaned up, checked the bike over. Um, I think I I was probably one of the better ones at getting to sleep, and I think you know sleep is is key when you're doing something like that. So I probably got about four hours every sixteen hours. Mm. Which, Actually, it's not too bad, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but uh, yeah, it is tricky. It is tricky. 
it's it's all those extras. It's a lot easier just to get on the bike and ride. Mm. But as we were riding for an hour, um, or 45 minutes the second time, we, we chose to do that interval because we thought that would be, it takes us, took us all, uh, the older you get, the longer it takes you to warm up and get going. Mm-hmm. Um, so we figured that we'd be able to ride quicker that way and then rest in the car, you know, stretch, move, fuel, whatever, um, keep warm, and and then go out and do it again. So we knew to get across in the in the um, time limit, we had to do, I think it was at least 12, 12 and a half miles an hour average. Well, you know, going up over the Rockies and mm-hmm. over the Appalachians and stuff and along a very boring straight road in the winds of Kansas, um, you know, that it's not just plain sailing with a tailwind. So, no. But again, some nice downhills. <laughs> how, did you, how did you find just the aspect of riding over in the US? Because I've ridden in a few states and, um, yeah, it's not my favourite experience. No, the the big the big trucks can get a bit close. Um, there were they kept us off the main roads, the you know the um, auto routes. Well, we can yeah, we used quieter roads, but there were some very very busy roads. But we always had to have a a car with us that mm-hmm. would follow us at night. We had to stay in their headlights, and um, during the day they had to have flashing lights uh, as a, a warning that were, that was a bike there. Mm. But if you needed to come out and pass another cyclist or whatever, you know, you did take your life in your hands. There was one bit where I, I went, I looked behind, there was nothing there, but um, went out. And then I got sort of the wind from a rather large truck, shall we say. It didn't it didn't touch me and I was fine. But, you know, it was a bit mm. closer than I'd have I'd have liked. But, uh, yeah, so there, there were there are times when it's not the ideal place to ride a bike. But. I always believe that if you're predictable and you, mm-hmm. you stay straight and that you're, you know, you fellow cyclists or, or follow car or general public or whatever, they can see that you're going straight, mm. you're keeping the pace, you're not looking around looking worried. They know that you're, they can predict that you're okay. Mm-hmm. And, and I think as soon as you start worrying too much about what's going on around you, then, then it's when sort of uh, wobbles can can happen T- tell me about your last triathlon then i mean did you manage to find one that was on exactly the same day and date no no no, no i i didn't try and do that because it was may the 23rd was the first and in, in this last summer i went uh, as part of the gb sprint team that was my um first world sprint and drafting race with the gb team um in hamburg and i thought yeah i'm quite enjoying this again but um I don't know, it just had lost a little bit of sparkle. Um, and I thought, well, it's 40 years on, what do I want to do? So I thought, well, there's a, there's a triathlon in Minehead, which is a, a wonderful triathlon. It's a sprint one. It's a 750 metres open water swim. Um, and it's a, a bike along the edges of Exmoor and um, a run across the beach and up the hill and down the hill and back across the beach. So... Yeah, it's it's a really nice sprint. Uh-huh. I've done it a few times, uh, and we we a group of us tend to go down from Western, and well, indeed, some from London come down and do it. And I I 
before I started it, I thought, I wonder, is this the time to call it a day? And I thought, I wanted to go out on a high on my own terms when I wanted to. Mm-hmm. And I, before I started, well, a couple of weeks before, I thought, right, okay, if that one goes really well, that's it. If it doesn't, okay, I'll, I'll stick mm-hmm. with it okay. Okay. next year. So um, it was a wonderful day, blue sky and sun, which always helps. It's a two-lap ocean swim. Um, and I thought, oh, that's all right. I mean, you know, not as quick as I used to be, but uh, did the two laps, set off on the bike. I decided I wouldn't try a scooting mount, um, but I did do my my uh, dismount, running dismount, so I was quite pleased with that. Uh, so that the bike went well, um, and then I thought, okay, set off on the run. And I really enjoyed I wasn't trying to run fast. I was just running to – but I ran. Um, the only bit I walked up was the uh, – the really steep hill that goes up <laughs> from mine it uh-huh. um, and I think a lot of people walk up that to be honest um so ran back along the prom along the beach um it was sunny there were friends so yeah I thought that's it wow and then, and then uh we went out for for uh the dinner after well I don't know 19 of us I think and one of the guys walked me back to the um car park and I hadn't said oh yes I said to the race organizer that's right as I went across the road he was there and I kind of know him reasonably well and I said that was my last triathlon and I didn't say anything to anybody else um until I went back with a, a friend to my car and I told him and he said why didn't you tell us before the dinner <laughs> and I said well I I just had to make sure I didn't you know and also I was quite emotional at the time and I didn't really want to sort of, well, everybody was somewhere was celebrating doing their first triathlons ever. Others were celebrating various this, that, and the other, enjoying themselves, you know, with friends and family, mm-hmm. and whatever. So it didn't feel right to sort of take that over. But yeah, we've since had a, that's why I did the spreadsheet because we since had a couple mm-hmm. of celebrations um, and it feels right. It feels odd. But it, it felt right. It was a good time. It was a good time to stop. Uh, well, like, yeah, like like you say, it's it's better to be in control of when you start and stop things, isn't it, than having things foisted upon you because you, you've got a knee injury or the doctor says, yeah, actually, if you carry on doing this, um, you know, you're going to damage yourself. But I'm I'm amazed. I mean, you started off relatively late, um, really, at 33, and mm. then you, you finished at 73. But what what amazes me more is over all of those years, maintaining the enthusiasm and and the health and fitness to 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 have the choice to do these triathlons, um, and so what I wondered was about your training. Now, obviously, in those early days, you had the children to think of, and you, you had your job, and um, but I'm interested in how you how you fitted in the training, um. You know, I mean, we we worked together for a bit, but before then, I wasn't aware that where you, whether you're getting any coaching. So obviously, you, you know, that background knowledge that you talked about earlier would have stood you in good stead. And um, was there anything spe- special or specific about your training that you did in the in the early days? It it had to fit in with the rest of my life, as it were. Um, it was how how do I how do I get the variety? So in there was a stage where I did 
begin to overtrain, but I've never actually been injured other than sort of ankle down a rabbit hole once or twice. But um, I've been quite lucky in the sense that I've focused quite a lot on mobility and and strength and and um, do, doing sort of Pilates and yoga probably since 2000 so uh, you know 20 plus years um not daily not daily but something daily and I was always quite committed to one rest day a week at least one rest day I do one or two sessions um in a day so I do anything between seven or eight hours up to I found that 15 hours a week really pushed me a bit too far for for a number of reasons you know I, I wasn't that became a chore and I begin to I began to not feel as oomphy as it were so less is more um on, on mm-hmm. that respect but I used to run along the Thames to work um so I'd you know run in in the morning and run back at in the evening so I tried to sort of fit things into um mm-hmm. into journeys as it were um so I you know ride ride to the shops right right to the station run along run along the river so okay the longer ones well I did do the longer ones because I used to live out in Ryslip and I worked down in the middle of London so I think that was 16 miles so that was quite a handy long run um once a week and then I'd take the tube back out in the evening so it it was uh yeah looking for places where I could sort of slide things into today mm-hmm. as well as having to put aside some specific time obviously mm-hmm. were you always pretty cognizant of things like diet and and what what you ate or were you fairly yeah. relaxed about that well sometimes that worked better than others because I I, I you, you can never get away from a swim coach saying, if you lose weight, you'll go faster. Uh, yeah. Well, we've, we've had lots of conversations on this podcast about that. Um, yeah. So I don't, I don't think things have changed much, unfortunately. No. no. Um, so, you know, the bit of disordered eating floating around, um, sometimes binging, you know, that, so that I've always been cognizant of what I've been eating, not necessarily been in, um, in the best place around food put it that way uh Mm. but i and i also with hindsight i the the guidelines of low fat and as general health and the guidelines of gels and bars to sustain i mean when i first did the london marathon i had a sip of water every every mile or two or whatever it was no Mm. such thing as gels and what have you no um and so I've never been into sort of hundreds of gels per race or anything, but you get swallowed up in the marketing. Um, I don't, I haven't had any gels or bars for a long time. So in terms of, yes, I, well, as you know, I, I took part in the um, veteran athlete heart study and discovered some rather serious calcification in coronary arteries. So I went keto for a while to try and deal with that, i.e. Um, very low Carb- well, no, no to low carbohydrate and higher olive oil, good fats, mm. on, mm-hmm. and medium protein, as it were. I'm kind of like now sort of messing around with Zoe, um, which again is sort of quite a, a good balanced program. 
uh, emphasizing low, you know, ultra processed foods and stuff. Uh, um, I do, I do remember the the heart issues, but I hadn't remembered the coronary artery calcification, and I wondered if that was similar to my own diagnosis, where I was told it was really, really high. Like the doc, the, the research professor rang me and said. Oh, you're in the highest. You're in the highest percentile for your age, and <laughs> like competitive. Yay! She said it's not a good thing. Um, and my score was twelve hundred, and the um the top percentile for most men of my age was four hundred or five hundred, and so uh, it's quite a lot higher. I've since been in some other research where they've said if you, if you're involved in extreme endurance, so like the sort of the sort of exercise that you and I were doing, Margaret, many many hours a week over. Simon. Sorry. So when I was part of some heart research, I got um, this coronary artery calcium score, CAC, which was 1,200. And the high levels for men of my age is sort of four or 500. So they were a bit alarmed. But I've since been involved in some other research. And they told me that actually for people who do extreme bouts of exercise like we've done for many years, um, it may be quite normal to get that calcium um production and um, laying down on the inside of the arteries as a result of the exercise and it may even be cardioprotective because it helps line the arteries and because of the blood pressure the arteries are increasing in size anyway so you're not really disadvantaged by having a narrow aperture um but there just isn't enough evidence for people like you and me for them to know whether that's normal so they they compare us to normal people yeah. and say actually you're on the at risk so every time i go to the doctor now um, I get this reminder saying, and because you're on the vulnerable, because you're um, a vulnerable person, I mean, it does have its advantages. I, I get a, I get a COVID jab now when I'm not supposed to have one. Um, I've not yet got my blue parking badge. <laughs> the next thing, but but I, but I wonder if I wonder if that diagnosis that you had might have had a similar mechanism to it, and actually, or have you have you since had a diagnosis that tells you actually there is something to worry about? No, they. I mean, they were they were worried when they first found it, because um, uh, mine mine was five hundred and three, mm-hmm. um, which is serious, mm-hmm. uh, not quite as high as yours. Anyway, there you go, um, but high enough. And oh, you need statins and blah blah blah. Uh, Did you go on the statins? No, no, me me neither. <laughs> uh, and I said, well. Okay, um, maybe down the line, but I'm going to try via diet. So I did sort of modify that, right, there are two things here. I did a lot of reading, two things here that may have contributed. One is um, kind of long triathlon training over a long period of time, Mm -hmm. um, both in endurance and in, in intensity. And the other is that fueling that by, you know, some very kind of sugary, high carbohydrate, Mm um, gels and things. So both of those seem to independently contribute to the possibility of the calcification. Mm. Um, so by altering both of those, then, you know, I, I actually went back three years later and, and had it retested, not by the same people, but um, a similar test, and it was six points lower. Now, for me, that's that, you know, the key was to keep it from within a 15% increase per yeah. year. Yeah. So it had stabilized. Now, why it had stabilized, whether it's because of my change of training and change of diet, who knows, but it mm. had stabilized. Mm. Um, so I've subsequently had a a chat with another guy and he said and I said oh I think I should have it tested again see what's happening he said I wouldn't bother he said you're fine from what you're saying you know you I you know 
lots of green leafy vegetables and tofu and plant-based diet and uh you know Mm. all the you know keeping up the activity and stuff but not quite as much as you used to yeah yeah so i'm not you know that that seems to have um settled i'm not too worried about that now yeah, it's, it's been the same for me, really. I didn't want to go on the statins, so I agreed with the cardiologist that if we had a conversation every year and I'd keep tabs on how I felt if I got any if I got any symptoms of, uh, you know, cardiac mm. pain, chest ache or anything, and uh, and he rings me. Um, yeah, it's, I feel like it's quite a good service from the NHS, <laughs> from my own experience. Um, yeah, I mean, the, well, to be honest, the NHS down here didn't really know much about what I was talking about and and my GP just kind of said to me he said you know more about it than I do so <laughs> just keep me keep me in touch as it were yeah. from time to time but yes yeah, so I'm it, it, it sort of has settled into the background now I know that you've always been a member of uh, for as long as I've known you anyway of Serpentine as, as as you've got older have you found that being part of a club and that sort of community is because um, I know you're a coach as well and you're still swim coaching as has, has that helped you to maintain your enthusiasm to be involved in sport and to and to participate? Well, I think it has. I mean, co- coaching um, has been a real big part of my life for the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years. Mm-hmm. Um, we had squads at Serpentine and, and, and the Serpentine Club is, is massive in the middle of London and has served me very well. I still coach for them in Lanzarote. Um, for their week in March. Um, I was a bike coach, triathlon coach, swim coach. I seem to have landed, landed with the, the swim coaching. and uh, Not landed with, but, yeah, choosing to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, yes, I still coach for them in Lanzarote, but having retired and, mo- and, and always sort of splitting time between London and the West Country, um, I'm now with Western Athletic Club, and so I coach swimming, and I've taken on the triathlon section for, mm-hmm. for, that, for the last few years. Um, so bringing on other coaches, so coach mentoring, and and, and building the um, triathlon section of of the Western Club. Uh, so th- there's there's always something new to do, um, and uh, you know, so you're sort of moving moving on as it were, and I think that community it's the connections it's the friendships over the years mm, mm. that are really key to maintaining sort of an um an in, an interest in things um it's more than just an interest though you know i think it's it's really important that you you know that you don't let your get up and go get up and go as it were <laughs> I, I think you know triathlons um a much smaller sport than running and so it's more it's more common i think to um to have to travel a little bit for races and for the, and therefore for, for you to come across people that you've met before and you know i still meet people now that i, I can remember meeting the guy at the outlaw presentations and i remembered his name it's quite unusual and, and i said to him well, you, you used to compete back in the early 90s and he said i did and so then we got chatting and he said, oh, I remember you. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, there's, pe- there's people that I've known for 30 or 40 years through triathlon that I infrequently b- b- bump into at events, either spectating or volunteering. And that's that that's an amazing thing about the sport, isn't it? Those friendships that are built up. I think that's absolutely key. And whether it's sort of in the UK or it's around the world in different places, I mean, the travel and adventure that it offers, 
but there were but but things like I mean Bowood's not that very far and I remember doing Outlaw Bowood mm, a few years ago um, and I remember you calling me over the line and saying mm, she won't mind me saying but I think she's the oldest <laughs> in the race here <laughs> uh, but so apart from that um, uh, so you know we have kept connections there was people from the Serpentine Club and from the Western Club and I don't know Exeter and Bath and Chippenham Cheltenham, mm-hmm. Cheltenham or somewhere where you know that you you just meet at events mm-hmm. um, and uh, you sort of pick up well some friendships are stronger and last between events I suppose and others just sort of mm-hmm. re-emerge when you actually get to see each other again over a coffee or whatever it is at, 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 at an event yeah i uh, i'm interested to know what what things you do differently now i mean you said you obviously you, you your nutrition was um sort of motivated a little bit by those you know those mm-hmm. heart heart um research results um you your pilates and um yoga and that sort of stuff are really good and good for mindset as well as the mobility um have you have you noticed that you've had that you've had changes forced upon you as you've got older have, have you had to do a little bit less of this or had to do a little bit of that in order to keep going i think unconsciously things evolve if you listen to your body um and respond to it i mean there, there's a fine line isn't there between saying oh i'm tired i can't do that and thinking well actually i should go a little bit slower or a little bit shorter or whatever that's always there though right i mean i I can remember that when i first started out thinking i'm a bit tired today should i go out running yeah so you have you know there's those decisions that you have to make and and not use um there has to be a reason rather than an excuse Mm. uh, somehow but yes i mean things have got shorter um they've got slower um but on the other hand, you have to keep up the intense stuff, which I probably don't do as well as I would advise others to do <laughs> as a coach. Um, but, hey, uh, I do try. I mean, I do the odd sort of park run or something. Um, mm. And I shall do some time trials in the summer. And that that's part of the slotting those kinds of things in is my kind of speed work in the, in the week, as it were. But I don't do nearly as many hours as I as I used to, and I definitely do more uh, mobility work. And for one of my athletes, you put me in touch with Most Motion and Sarah. Mm-hmm. Um, won't go into that too much, but I actually qu- quite uh, like the notion that she had that of uh, there's no – Static stretches have gone out of my vocabulary, and I uh-huh. think they've gone out of many people's. But uh-huh. her movement therapy kind of um, solved the notion of you need to think about the movement of each joint through its full range and uh-huh. not just sort of stretch in one direction. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so for a long time, I've you know, if I if I there was a transition in a sense. Yes, you'd stretch, but I would move the stretch. So, well, partly because I thought, well, hang on a minute, quadriceps is a quad four, mm. triceps, tri three. You know, that you, you, your your limbs, particularly in triathlon, need to move in in lots of different directions and angles and speeds. So the important mm. thing is to make sure that you 
back that up by enabling them to be the um, the most mobile and the strength in the different angles. So the functional flexibility and the functional strength mm. through some of her kind of ideas has been quite key to both my own performance and my coaching. Do you, do you lift weights at all these days? Have you yeah. ever lifted weights? Yeah, I used to go to the gym when I was in my 30s and lift weights. And I have to, <laughs> there were times when I'd take great joy in kind of like coming off the bench press and seeing mm. a bloke follow me on and have to take a weight off. <laughs> or, you know, I'd, I'd follow a bloke and I have to put a weight on. Or, yeah, it's just silly things, silly things like that, really. Um, but I then began to think about, well, what is it about triathlon? And it's only really a triceps. I occasionally will do a, a, a triceps thing. Mm -hmm. um, and that's about the only thing that the gym weights actually contribute to. Okay. Strength required in triathlon. So, yeah, I do the kettlebell and, and, you know, fling a kettlebell around from time to time, but it's moving and it's moving in different directions. And mm -hmm. when I say fling a kettlebell, I don't mean that literally. I'm sure you do. I've seen you, Margaret. I know, I know you probably do <laughs> fling them around. If you if you're taking great pleasure out of out bench pressing the guys, you probably do throw them around a bit. <laughs> no longer, no longer. <laughs> um, there's a period in every female's life. I think uh, us men are still struggling to understand and communicate with them. But the menopause affects females in different ways. And mm. I did I did ask you beforehand whether you, you'd be comfortable chatting about this because I yeah. know that. Most of the females I speak, we say they wish they wish that this would actually be spoken about a bit more and come out into the open. So, um, can you share a little bit about how that impacted your life, how how it impacted your training, how it impacted things like sleep and, um, you know, energy levels and nutrition and all of those all those things that we see popularized, like you know, I've gained weight and I just can't get rid of it and I don't know what to do. Yeah, um, I mean it's it's. It, I've always found it difficult to pinpoint, pinpoint cause and effect mm. um, because, yeah, you'd wake up. I'd wake up at night and, you know, you're hot and sweaty. Um, okay. Thank, I mean, I don't think I had the extremes that some people have had. Um, but but it certainly, you know, is it menopause or isn't it? And then mm. it was like, well, does it matter? Should I take HRT or should I not? Well, if you take HRT, you're just delaying the menopause. When you come off it, you'll get the menopause. I thought, well, I might as well do it now then. Mm -hmm. So I never did take any HRT. Um, uh, I tried to make sure that the relaxation and the sleep were were dealt with. Um Sometimes it was hard to tell the difference between what might have been a menopause um, issue and what might have been a training issue. Mm. Uh, so heart heart rate, for example, um, would be a bit high. Well, yeah, I was hot and sweaty, but I'd just been for a run. <laughs> or, um, but yeah, there were there were times when the two would coincide. I suppose. My attitude towards it was ignore it where you can. Mm -hmm. And I think I was probably lucky to get away with that because I know that there are people who really do mm -hmm. struggle. Um, but I've never been one for taking things if I can possibly avoid it. I'm not saying mm. I've never taken things, but um, 
legitimate things that is. Um, <laughs> uh, but you were I, a child. You were a child of the sixties, Margaret. I'm sure there oh, was. Oh yeah. I'm so sure there was some fun at Woodstock and places like that. Well, you, you know, I've never actually tried them. Although that my my lads my my lads do wonder sometimes how I know what marijuana smells like. <laughs> But uh, it's only being in the presence of <laughs> honest guff. <laughs> honest guff, yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I, I kind of thought, well, what will be will be. I need to deal with whatever's happening to my mind and body, mm. and be aware of what's happening, and not try and overrule it, but work mm. with it. Yeah. And I think. For me, working with whatever was happening um, kind of allowed it to uh, tick along without a hell of a lot of um, issues. I mean, I do remember the doctor pres- prescribing HRT, but that seemed like an automatic response. And I can't actually remember why I went now, um, but it, there was obviously something going on. <laughs> um because it's quite a long time ago. <laughs> that that was probably one of the emails that we all get at a certain age where they go, you, you're, you've reached this age and we think we ought to have a conversation with you. You should come in for a checkup. And while you're here, let's let's suggest this to you and that to you. Yeah. Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. Those were, those were the days when they did that sort of thing. So, um, mm. yeah, I thinking back to the conversation a few moments ago where you you know, you said that you'd retired from triathlon and now we've got the the next season coming along and, you know, you've, you've decided to hang up your triathlon wheels or maybe you haven't, but, um, so does it, does it feel strange not, not having to go through the calendar and look for events or is it, is it actually, um, is it energizing to think, well, there's no pressure now to get fit for anything and I can do what I want. It was a bit strange. I mean, 220 still sort of lands on the mat as it were. Um, and it was a bit strange when the 2024 calendar, um, one of them, I can't remember what it was now, fell out of it. So, yes, there's a bunch of emails and there's a bunch of stuff that, uh, you know, get your, get your season sorted, as it were. And so the first time that happened, I thought, oh. But, no, I've, I've made the decision and I'm not going back on that. Um, so it, it does feel a little bit odd not planning. But... I'm kind of awaiting the next instalment in a sense. I plan on, you know, doing some cycle time trials, um, plan on maybe the odd run event, maybe do the serpentine swim Mm -hmm. because I've done the London Marathon. I've done Ride London a couple of, done both of those a couple of times. So the swim is the only one that's missing out of the classic trio. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I might give the two mile, probably too late to enter now, but, you know, it's sort of, I've always kind of been a bit opportunistic. Uh-huh. I, my mind is saying something will pop up that will grab you. I mean, I've got two trips. I love travel, and I've got a friend in Tobago, an ex-colleague. So I'm off to Tobago. Um, my village is twinned with a village in Kenya, um, and, and we've been twinned for 25 years in October. So um, I shall go to Kenya um for a couple of weeks uh in october so there's i don't need to travel miles with a bike any longer although having said that march in lanzarote and and may in 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 Mm -hmm. 
Italy, I shall take my bike and I shall ride. So I'm, I've not kind of like curled up in a ball in bed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was sorely tempted because in Italy, the Cesnatico triathlon is on the last weekend of our stay. And I know for a fact that quite a few will be doing it. Mm-hmm. But I will go and support or I might offer to marshal. Um, I'm not going back on that decision. But there are times that things have kind of presented themselves. That I think, mm. Mm, well, I would have done that. Well, <laughs> but there are other things in life. There are. I mean, I've not, I've not competed since 2017, and but I still keep, I still train as if I'm competing. But it's nice not to have any pressure. I still like doing gravel sportives, and you know, trips like Lands into John O'Groats or some of the forum ones that we've done. Yeah, yeah, but. Uh, I've never been a racer. I've never really got excited about racing and thinking this is going to hurt. And, you know, and I'm, I'm not one of these folks that says, I, I, you know, I, I love the pain and I, you know, I love that feeling when you're racing. I like the feeling of accomplishment and I'm quite happy to push myself and experience some discomfort. But I think maybe it's the pressure of racing where you, you've got, you know, you've got to push yourself. Well, maybe, well, maybe actually you don't, you don't have to push yourself, but I think you people do races, you feel like you ought to, and that then brings a certain amount of pressure. So not having to do that and just being able to say, actually, that sounds like quite good fun. I'll do that is is quite nice. It it is. And I I have been pretty competitive um, and I, I do like racing and I have pushed myself and I have, you know, I have um, been on the top of the podium a few times. Uh, in various events, particularly European ones, um, made it on the seventy point three worlds once, but not on the top, but on the podium. Um, and and so, <laughs> what was really weird was it, it, it illustrating the competitiveness, which I think I need to just sort of tame a bit. And I've begun to, um, you know, Duolingo, and you 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 learn you learn the the languages, and I've got three three or four languages downloaded. But there's the blessed league in, in Duolingo. And it's like, you know, yeah, you've gone from the obsidian to the diamond or whatever it is, you know, and be careful, you're, you know, you're in you're you you need to be in the top whatever to be promoted and avoid the bottom, blah, blah. So I've stopped looking at the league now. I was saying to somebody the other day, I said, it's all very well, but I'm now being competitive with others who are learning a language. I just need to learn the language, not not mess around with linguistics. <laughs> league tables so i've i've kind of <laughs> it just amused me though i thought oh for heaven's sakes woman you you don't need to be competitive any longer i'm i'm laughing along with you here because i read an article um in one of the sunday papers with the founder of geolingo who who was talking about the success was this sort of um competitiveness and the gamifying of learning languages and uh, um well I, I know i was using the whoop sleep tracker and one of the things they introduced after a couple of years was you could create groups and so i created one for all of the folks that i was coaching and i called it the simon wards high performance human group and you know anybody could join and all of a sudden i found myself being drawn into this like these guys are getting 100 percent sleep quality what are they doing i've got to get there well i'm not I'm not the top on that one but i am the top on the number of hours sleep or the highest hrv or something and so yeah um and see, and and you know, a lot of the apps do it, don't they? Strava does it, and they tell you what your stats are, and can you beat last month's stats? And here's your monthly performance download, and 
yeah, there's no end to it. Uh, and no, and the, the the problem I find with that is, and 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 bless their hearts, you know, the Strava and Swift certainly have their places, but if you're not careful, you're doing too much at too high an intensity. Um, and I I think you know the the it, it takes away from the importance of math training, um, and yeah. you have to be really careful with that with that balance um i mean i was i was really chuffed and i've got an athlete who did her first ironman in copenhagen this year and then she qualified for kona so going from she's done half ironmans but going mm. not you know anyway she really finished strongly in both of those and um i uh, yeah she you know the the, the math training that it's it's like oh I don't see the point that's too slow, um, and a lot of people say that to me and I say well physiologically you can explain physiologically what it does and that you know there are different systems and you can't just bash at it because that's when you you know I see too many people just injured whether they're runners or whatever. Well, the ironic thing, of course, is that if you ask people what their math pace is, it's very, very close for the majority of age groupers to their race day pace. So mm. if you were to write, take out math and go run at your goal race pace here, <laughs> they're doing exactly the same thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's um, And it, it's quite, and again, it's kind of, it, it's tricky, isn't it? Because if you're not careful, you know, your, your math is uh, 135, say. Um, you know, it, it's like, well, if it's 137 one day or 133 one day, it, it's like, I've got to be on 135. And, and it's sometimes that flexibility and, and mm. you know, they, they forget that we're different, the environment's different. And, and so it's, it's again, it's it's about going with the, the what what is at that particular time, whether it's you, the environment, the stress, mm. sleep. Mm -hmm. it's being aware of everything and not focusing just on one metric or one thing well that that's one of the the learnings you get that that creates wisdom that you have margaret is that (laughs) um whilst there are lots of apps that can tell you what this is doing and what that's doing actually probably the overriding governor on all of these is what's your body actually telling you um and of course when you and i started um, in competitive triathlon there weren't any of these apps and there weren't any heart rate monitors and there weren't any smart watches so um you, if you if you were lucky you had one of those little clicker things that went on your wheel that told you how many miles you'd ridden or you could have one of those like almost like a traditional speedometer that told you how fast you were going yeah i think um, i had a speedometer mm. yeah but we but we didn't have any of that so it really was just um doing it by feel and maybe the occasional stopwatch but i I have conversations now with folks who've never experienced any of that. And they're like, well, how, how did athletes train before they had these gadgets? And I'm like, people were breaking world records back then and winning Olympic gold medals with none of that. Just good old fashioned training and listening to the body. Yeah. I think RPE is much underrated. Yes. Um, and and I spend a lot of time on, on pacing and, and mm-hmm. RPE and feeling, at, you know, different, at different levels. So, uh, eventually it kind of clicks but i think people find pacing a lot harder they do not not necessarily pacing for speed but pacing for intensity and Mm. you know um, well i yeah you probably do as well in your coaching i regularly have people saying well i know it says 
go at this level, but what 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 pace is that, or what heart rate is that? I'm like, yeah, it's, you know what? If you're running uphill, <laughs> pace is going to be a lot. So if you're running downhill, it's going to feel very very easy, and you're going to go very very fast. And if it's super hot, well, your heart rate will be high and your pace will be low. So like you just said a minute ago, you know, the environment changes, your mood changes, what you've eaten has changed everything. Um, the day of the week. <laughs> You know, whether you've just had a um, an argument with your partner or with another motorist, they, they all have an impact on how you feel when you're training. Yeah, lots of things have an impact. And, uh, and it is about accepting that. And um, not, and um, yeah, the, these heart rates and everything else, they're great guides, um, but they are not 100% accurate anyway. And um, no. you know, if you take your heart rate with one device and, a, and another device, you know they're they're not going to read the same half the time, so it, it's it, it it is tricky. And I, I mean, my point also is, well, okay, if you require a device to race with, what happens when that device runs out of battery? You haven't charged it, or it doesn't work, or mm-hmm. it flies off, or mm-hmm. whatever. So you know, you you need, in a sense, it's not a backup. It's your primary thing. It's the devices that are the backup, but mm-hmm. hey you know, whatever. <laughs> Margaret, it's been fabulous to catch up with you. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed um, listening to your experiences of, of um, being in the triathlon world, particularly some of your reminiscing from, from those early events. And uh, thank you for sharing that with us. And I, I, I do recognize that some of it, some of those memories are emotional. So thank you also for being so sharing on those as well. Yeah. Oh, it's been, it's, it's been good to kind of like mooch back over time. Thank you. Well, I hope that I continue to bump into you and um, uh, swap emails with you as we go forward. And um, I'm, I'm hopeful that the people of Serpentine Tri Club can continue to benefit from your wisdom and experience. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to Margaret for being my guest on the show this week. I think it was really nice for both of us to reminisce about UK triathlon back in the 80s and 90s. And for those of you who are a bit newer to the game, we might have been talking about some stuff that you never even realised happened, like being able to rack your bike by standing it up against a hedge or a wall. Okay, now if you haven't already heard them or seen that they're there, please check out our new Bite Size podcast episodes, which are released every Saturday. They're about 10 minutes in length, and I share some insights on some very specific topics. And please make sure you check out the show notes for links to all of the items I've mentioned above. If you have a couple of minutes... Please, could you share this episode with just one person who you think could benefit? And if you've got a little bit more time, perhaps you could leave me a review on your chosen platform once you've finished listening. If you can do either of those or both of them, that would be much appreciated. That's all for this week. In seven days' time, I will have another great guest, and I hope that you'll be able to join me. In the meantime, I'll say goodbye for now, and please remember to check out those bite-sized episode podcasts on Saturday mornings.